we are finishing our book, Chapter 10 of Uprooting Anger by Robert Jones in Biblical Soul Care Sunday School. And we're going to do a quick um, review of the definition of anger because, you know, we've missed a week. So we have to remind ourselves. So real quick, with somebody around you, what is the definition from Robert Jones of anger? Go. Talk, talk amongst yourselves and then you'll share it out. I need a brave soul to share with the whole class. What are all of Perry's pointing to Mark? A whole person actually responds to negative to a negative moral judgment against perceived evil. Very good. So it's a whole person active. Did you say active in there? Active. active response of negative moral judgment against perceived evil. Very good. So that's the the definition we've been working with. We talked last time. Uh, about what, how do we continue to be motivated to fight and uproot anger in our hearts because it's going to be another one of those lifelong battles because everybody has an anger problem. Um, some people are the, the anger concealers and some people are the revealers and then others uh, of us, we don't get angry when we ought to get angry when there is evil against um, God's kingdom and his priorities. And that should evoke in us some anger, some righteous anger. So we all have this issue that we're going to have to deal with and fight for the rest of our lives. So what are the motivations? Last week, we, or two weeks ago, we talked about the, the primary foundational reason is because God says so. Right? God tells us he's God. We are his creatures. We do what he says. He says, put anger through the Apostle Paul, put anger to death. Put it away. Um, we read a few scriptures about that. So we, we know that there's a command clearly in scripture to put anger to death, or sinful anger. And not only that, but he also gives us everything we need to do that. As we read in, in 1 Peter, he says, uh, is that 2 Peter 1? He gives us everything we need for life and godliness. So he's, he tells us to do it. That should be enough. That is enough. He gives us the strength and wisdom to do it. Um, but he doesn't stop there. In his goodness, he gives us more helpful motivations to, to keep it up. Um, and the first category of motivations that he gives us is that anger, when we, when we leave it alone, we just let it set, it hurts our own bodies, right? And um, spiritually, it harms us, and physically, it harms us. And we just address a little bit, there, there are several studies that point to those who, on the both ends of the spectrum, the concealers who never let anybody know that they're angry, but they're just angry all the time, and all the, the explosive, angry uh, folks, the, there are health problems that are 
that correlate with that. So um, we talked about that, and then we got where we ended is we just started to talk about the spiritual effects. So physically, there are effects to our bodies when we are sinning. And that is clear from um, texts like uh, Psalm 38, uh, where the psalmist is talking about how the Lord is, his hand is heavy on him and, and he is suffering uh, in part because of his sin. Um, we talked about David in Psalm, uh, wrong page here, Psalm 32, 1 through 5. Um, David talks about, for when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, my strength was dried up by, as by the heat of summer. Uh, so there are, because we are two parts, we are body and we are soul, and what happens in one of those affects the other. So we, we talked about chronic pain can often lead to depression and, and anxiety and anger and frustration and vice versa, guilt because of sinful um, sinful deeds that we have done that we haven't dealt with can lead to lack of sleep, uh, headaches, uh, all kinds of different things. So uh, we had read the quote that the, the body and soul are so close together that they catch each other's diseases, right? So we are um, both body and soul. So the spiritual effects of sinful anger is where we're picking up on page three, letter B. We talked about the question, um, what, what, just kind of doing some predicting, what spiritual effects could result from a believer's unrepentant anger? How does that affect you spiritually when you do not deal with your anger? Anybody want to give a guess there? This might be too vague, but it for sure will stunt your spiritual growth. I mean, I don't see how you can continue being sanctified if anger is just a part of your life. Right. Yeah, it stunts your spiritual growth. We, we can't grow in communion with God when we're disobeying Him actively, right? If I am refusing to repent of an anger problem that I have, I'm just not going to grow spiritually. Very good. And that there's, really that's kind of an umbrella term that all the rest of these can, can fall into. Look at the first one. Um, the first one that Robert Jones identifies is the lack of a clear conscience. 2 Corinthians 1.12 says, For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we have behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and supremely so toward you. And Acts 24.16 also um, Paul's saying, so I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Um, so Robert Jones makes a, a comment in the book that there's, there are a few things that are more important, more valuable than a clear conscience. When you uh, are not hiding something, you're not treasuring sin, and you have that clarity of conscience as Paul did, that is, that is something that is very peaceful. It gives you a lot of... Um, peace in the midst of difficult circumstances when you can say, I have a clear conscience. No matter what happens in this situation, I have done what the Lord, my, to the best of my ability and the best of my knowledge, I've, done, I've obeyed the Lord. And you can't do that if I know I really have this anger problem, but I'm, I kind of like it. If I'm treasuring that 
sin, that eliminates your clear conscience. You no longer have a clear conscience. Any comments on that? Okay. The second way is hindered prayers. And this is sin in general, but look at Psalm 66, 18. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. Good one. Let that settle in. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. So the Lord doesn't hear prayers when I'm cherishing iniquity. First Timothy 2.8. Paul writing, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Anger and quarreling stunts your prayers. Right? If I'm angry with somebody, it makes it pretty hard to pray for that person. <coughs> And in the context of marriage, this is a well-known verse here, 1 Peter 3, 7, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. So there's the reality that if we are treasuring sin, if we don't want to repent of it, <coughs> God is not okay with half-faithfulness with a, a divided heart. Third point, divine judgment. This is another effect, spiritual effect of treasuring anger that's sinful, not dealing with it. Matthew 5, 21 through 22. You have heard that it was said by those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to the judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. If you're like me, sometimes I, we read through that, and we're like, oh yeah, I don't, I don't do that, really. But that that's, should wake us up, cause us to sit up and pay attention. Okay, if I'm angry with my brother sinfully, that makes me liable to judgment in God's eyes. That is a serious serious thing. First John 2, 4 through 6. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. And again, a few verses later in verse 9 through 11. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. So what are these passages warning us about? God doesn't overlook our anger. He's going to judge it. that God does not overlook our anger. I think a lot of times, and I, I know this is from my own um, progress by God's grace, I've, I've noticed that a lot of times I, I will treat very seriously the sins that I feel like are directly against God. But like if I sin against people, it's like, yeah, it's not, not that big a deal. But these, these verses are warning me that to hate my brother is a big deal. 
If I say that I love the Lord and I hate my brother, I don't love the Lord, is what we're seeing here. In First John, it's saying also that we can be deceived concerning our anger because it says whoever says he is in the light. So that person thinks he's in the light, and yet he's hating his brother. So technically he's in the darkness. Yeah. So we can be very deceived. Yeah. So that, yeah, there's two things. So I can lie about it. I can say, yeah, I don't, I don't have an anger problem. When at home, I'm slamming things, and, or maybe I'm just sighing and being passive aggressive with my family or, or at work. And uh, but when I come to church, I'm hey, I'm in the life, I'm doing great. Or I can be deceived by my sin. Very good. Last one that he gives is enslavement to sin. I mean, he gives the example of Cain in Genesis four verses five through seven. But for Cain and his offering, he, God, had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. The question is, is it possible to allow a little bit of anger and be okay? Why not, Mark? Well, to bring you into something greater. Mm-hmm. <coughs> Closer still, you have sin against the Holy God. Yeah. A little bit of sin doesn't stay a little bit of sin. That's one. And secondly, a little bit of sin might seem like a little bit to us, but who's, who's the judge? And going back to Matthew 5, I have sin in my heart. I am a a mental murderer, right? I have the the intent in God's eyes to murder someone. So why might some people want to hold on to their anger? Not ready to forgive. Yeah. Not ready to forgive somebody who's done something wrong to me. And I don't want to forgive them. I want to hold on to that and be angry with them. Okay. What are some other reasons? The person isn't sorry. Yeah. I'm not really that sorry. Why, why would somebody... Let's think about that for a moment. Why would somebody not really be that sorry for being angry? Maybe they might admit, yeah, I probably should have done that. Why would they not really be sorry? Writing a wrong, the end justified the means, maybe? Any other reason that a person might not want to let go, forsake their anger? It's, there's something I come across, and this is kind of halfway a question, too, but um, some anger that some people, and even I, struggle with letting go a little bit is anger toward a serious injustice like when something is done to another person forcefully, if you're catching my drift, um, and then that person, let's say, becomes a Christian, and a lot of people still think that that person deserves hell, which we all deserve hell, so they're not wrong, but they become angry that God would forgive that person for what they did to other people. Um, 
I found especially toward children, and people have a very hard time letting go of somebody who do that to children. So, and uh, how to talk to somebody who had that done to them or to someone they know, and then that person becomes a Christian or something of that sort, like they're, they're forgiven. And how to let go of that anger, it's extremely difficult because it was a terrible, terrible, mm-hmm. very, you know, damaging thing to that other person mm-hmm. and to God. Yeah, yeah. And it's very difficult when you have something like some an atrocity of some kind, whatever that atrocity. Um, you think of like some obvious examples are murderers, uh, people who assault others, um, who abuse children. I mean, there's there's certain categories in our societally that we and we would recognize rightly that those are wicked, evil things. Abortion would be another example of those things. So what when somebody who has done something awful repents and believes, how do we process that? How do we deal with the anger? I think there's a couple of things. When I recognize that who's in charge of meeting out justice? God is. So if I'm hanging on to my anger against someone who has done something terrible, what am I saying about God? Kind of what I tried to tell them was that mm-hmm. we're saying God isn't good enough or isn't punishing them good enough or that God is wrong. How is he punishing someone if he saves them? Or how, how is he giving justice if that person is a believer, repents and turns to, to Christ? How is justice done? Jesus took it upon the cross. Every bit of God's wrath toward his people was poured out on Christ, the perfect sacrifice, who endured the cross to fully satisfy the wrath of God. So if that person is a believer, it, justice is not just undone. It's not left and swept under the rug. God repays every sin of every believer fully and completely on Christ, on the cross. So perfect justice will be done. And if that person does not turn perfect justice will be done. So I I think studying the justice of God, um, how much he hates sin is also, on some some levels it's kind of scary because like, oh, I I told kind of a a lie and God hates that and I'm under, I've stored up the wrath of God and so on that sense we're like, oh man, that's, that's not very fun. But on the other hand, when we think about the fact that the unbelievers who do terrible things, justice will be done. Nothing is going to go unpunished. Nothing. Nobody gets away with anything in the end. And that, that gives us a great deal of peace for those who seem to get, to get away with it. You know, when we see injustice and somebody pretty clearly does something, but gets away with it, maybe they go through the court system and somehow they get off. <clears throat> And we, in, in a sense, we can get angry at that because justice was not done, righteously angry. Um, but we trust the Lord that he will, he's keeping track. Nothing escapes his eyes. He doesn't forget. Everything will be done. 
we leave room that we go to uh, Romans 12 that we've gone to several times here in the last few weeks um, we leave room for the wrath of God in a situation like that I, I think of Paul because he was a murderer he became a believer and became very high in, in the realm of the church and influential and just envisioning using a family member inviting him into your home and he was instrumental in killing someone from your family um, and yet he's a person that loves the Lord or Ananias who you know that was the first person Saul went to you know so it's not something new and God's word does address that yeah so God is a just God he will do justice and God will for his people all things work together for good all of the things all of them the bad ones too they work together for good to those who love and are called to his purpose uh, Judy real quick well, you know you said about being unfair when they repent and become a Christian and their sin is forgiven but we have to realize for that person it may be very painful to realize they are a sinner and repent of the sin or sins that they have committed and that to me would be very painful and it's easy for people to judge others who have not been necessarily in that position of whatever it is that they did that they sinned and some of us consider some sins worse than other sins which I don't know God's mind and they may be but we all sin and have to be held accountable and repent regardless of our sins. And for most of us, that's a difficult thing to do. Yeah, we have, we have to be, care be careful of our own pride, too, when, when I'm wanting to um, point out the sins of others. We do know certainly that some there are atrocities and, and terrible things and we call them the atrocity we call those sin like the Bible does um, but sometimes that, that is a way for us to in our pride if we're not willing to forgive there's some things wrong what's wrong with my theology if I do not want to forgive someone who has done something terrible I don't. I don't want to forgive others as He's forgiven me. I've forgotten how much my sin, right, is against God. Will, were you going to say something? Just the same kind of the same thing. We have to, by the power of the Holy Spirit, see our own sin. We're all sinners. Mm -hmm. But also, I was thinking of the story of Corey Ten Boom and how she forgave the guard who abused her, abused her sister, and eventually her sister was killed. And that's such a powerful story, too, to share with others. Um, she didn't want to forgive the guard. After years later, he became a Christian, and he came to her asking for forgiveness. And she didn't want to shake his hand, but when she did, it was 
such a release and such a uh, time of, um, I don't know, it's just a stronger walk with the Lord after she did that. So that's so important to forgive. Yeah. It's a, it's a good question when you think about um, the parable, or well not the parable, when, when the, the woman came and walked, she washes Jesus' feet with her tears and dries them with her hair, and the, the Pharisees are indignant. And he talks about the, the master who owes two men money. He forgives both of them. Which one will love him more? The one who's forgiven much. I, I think sometimes we forget that how much we've been forgiven. And when we are able to point to everybody else's sin, there's we've got a problem on our hands. We are on a slippery slope toward, uh, we're probably already there in self-righteousness, thinking, I have not done that. How could God forgive that? Yeah, that's we've got. We're in some dangerous territory there, where we need to re-examine our hearts and think about the depth of my sin against God, and how it. It's not like clearing a, a tree. There's a forest of sins that I am going to spend the rest of my life chopping down. And I'm not going to finish it until Christ comes back and he will, he will finish it for me. But anger is also murder. Mm-hmm. I mean, so. Yeah. I'm sure we've all been angry. Mm-hmm. We have all been angry. And we are all angry probably daily. So we are doing a lot more wrong than we think. Any other comments on that? <coughs> the last, and I've mentioned this before, the last on um, question 12, some people want to hold on to it because it's useful. It, it works. If I am intimidating in the way that I speak to somebody or in my physical appearance or in the way that I carry myself, the way that I, I um, the tone of my voice or the, the volume, and if people do what I say when I get angry, it's find it useful, that's going to be hard for me to let that go. Right? Or the other the other way around, if I give that person the silent treatment and I just give little short answers and I roll my eyes and it works, I want, I want to keep that in my back pocket for when I need, I need them to listen to me. I need them to do what I want them to do. It's, it can be useful. It works. That's why people do it, right? So there's a lot of reasons why we might want to hold on to our anger. Sinful reasons to hold on to sinful anger. We must cast them off. Point number three at the bottom of page four. We should repent of our sinful anger for the health of our relationships and our testimony. So just a quick question. How does sinful anger affect your relationships at church? You might not be willing to listen to gentle corrections from other believers. Yeah. So somebody tries to come and help me. And point out some sin to me and I get angry with them. I'm not going to grow. That's good. What else? 
how does anger affect, we can just, church at home, work, whatever. Think about a relationship where, where somebody is pretty angry. How, do, how does it affect the relationship? Judy? This can apply to all of the words. <clears throat> words spoken in anger can never be taken back. Mm-hmm. And the person who you speak them to, usually it has a very hard time forgetting those angry words <clears throat> that you have spoken. And you may be sorry later, and you can say I'm sorry, but they're still out there. Mm-hmm. When I when I speak something in anger and hurt somebody, the hurt I've I've done damage. And and what I ought to do is ask for forgiveness, right? And if that person forgives me, the damage goes away. No, the forgiveness is I I will take the damage and not exact from you what you deserve. So forgiveness is, I'm covering the cost of that damage. So that doesn't mean the damage goes away. So if I'm an angry person in in a relationship, that relationship cannot be close. There's not going to be a lot of joyful um, closeness in that relationship. Because you you don't know when I'm going to be Unleash my anger. Or I'm gonna freeze you out. It's, it's hard to get close with somebody like that, isn't it? So there, there will always be a distance in that relationship when there's an angry person. So the first one that he identifies there, top, top of page five, is that anger hinders unity in the church. Ephesians four one through six. Therefore. I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all, through all, and in all. So all of those things, when we are angry, sinfully angry, I mean, going through all those verses, all those words that are impossible to have when you're when I'm angry in a sinful way. Humility, I'm thinking about myself if I'm sinfully angry. I want what I want. I'm not counting you more significant than myself. Gentleness, probably not being real gentle if I'm sinfully angry. I'm, I'm being forceful and hurtful with my words or with my actions, or both. Patience. Bearing with one another in love. So, not a lot. Not, no room for that if I'm sinfully angry. Ephesians 4.31 says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor be, and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Perry mentioned that just a little bit ago. We are to forgive one another as God in Christ forgave you. If I'm angry with you, I'm holding on to that. I will not forgive you. You haven't done enough yet. So, anger gets in the way of unity. Let's, for the sake of time, let's go to the next category. Anger is contagious. Proverbs 22 
24 through 25, Make no friendship with a man given to anger, nor go with a wrathful man, lest you learn his ways and entangle yourself in a snare. So what are the implications of these verses on our relationships in the church? We grab others in towards him with us. Yeah. If I am a model and I anger sinfully in the church, the likelihood that some are going to see that and like, oh, must be okay. And depending on your your kind of your level of leadership or your sphere of influence in that in the church, if I model that, and it, are, it, it can catch on in a church, and we can have an angry church. Okay, we can probably think of some examples of some churches filled with angry people, and it could happen here. That can impact the community's view of the church. Exactly. So when, when we become a church that is known for all the things we hate and all the things that we get angry about, it's a problem. <clears throat> what about at home? people, their, their expression of anger comes from where? Home. Working together with their own simple heart, we'll give, grant that too, but the way that I get angry a lot of times is I learned it from my parents, my siblings. makes this one really difficult because it's not like I can just not associate. Sometimes I read that verse and I think, okay, there's an angry guy. I'm not going to be super close to that person. You know, I'm going to, I want to learn those, those habits and those ways that patterns of speech, those, those things that he will do that, that I can, I can start to complain about and I can start getting angry at those things. No, no, no. I, I'm going to, I can do that. But if it's, if I'm the problem at my house, how does that affect my wife and my children? Yikes, that's pretty scary. What about at work? <clears throat> Anybody have any angry people at work? Hmm. How does it affect your relationship with that person? walking on eggshells, so to speak, right? You're just like, I'm not sure what to say or what to do here. That person's going to get angry. Okay. Yeah. So how does uprooting sinful anger then benefit those around us? Proverbs 16, 7 says, When a man's ways please the Lord, 
He makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. It's not something that's automatic, but when I am pleasing to the Lord, if I'm uprooting my sinful anger and other sins, I'm dealing with my sin, I am pursuing righteousness, loving the Lord, living for his glory in general, I'm going to have peaceful relationships. Especially at home. I have a lot, a lot more influence, a lot more time. But at work, school, at church, pursuing righteousness, obeying the Lord, loving others, facilitates peace. Romans 12, 18 is, is that verse that we're talking about. Um, as, far, as much as it depends on you, you live peaceably. Live at peace with all men. So, uprooting sinful anger is a blessing to those around us. Makes us safe, trustworthy. Something we hadn't really touched on a whole lot, but how, how much trust can you have in somebody who's really angry? It's really hard to trust them because you don't know how they're going to react to them all the time. I need to talk to them about something important. It's hard to do when you're talking to an angry person. Last point, <clears throat> bottom of page five, we should uproot our sinful anger to please God and avoid his judgment. There's the quote from the book, the preeminent rationale for biblical change, for replacing anger with godly fruit, concerns our relationship to God, our Savior. The most pressing biblical questions are not, what does unresolved anger do to me, or how does it affect my relationships, but rather, what will it do to my Lord? How does it grieve him? What does he think about me and my anger problem? Those are the most important questions that we ought to consider. Ephesians 4, 30 and 31. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Grieving the Holy Spirit of God. So, what effect does our sinful anger have on our communion with God? <coughs> Talked a lot about. Anger at sin, but there, in Ephesians 4:30, we could grieve the Holy Spirit, and that should be devastating for us as believers. Right? If we think about that, when I am sinfully angry, grieving the Holy Spirit. should be one of, one of the more terrifying things that we can think about in our lives. Romans 8, 28, 29, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be firstborn among many brothers. 
So what is God's purpose for us as believers? That we become conformed to his image. We conform to the image of his son. That's God's purpose for us. So when I'm sinfully angry at people and circumstances in my life, what am I, what is revealing, what am I revealing about my heart? It's kind of a, a trail. So it's the first step is we know that all things work to be together for good. For those who love God, for those who called who are called according to his purpose, right? So all things, including people who annoy us, people who make us angry, the guy who cuts us off in traffic, the all of those things, the, the fact that I didn't sleep well, the pain that I'm having right now, the people in my life, all of those things are, are in that, all things, right? We know that all things work together for good to those who love God and those who are called according to his purpose. So if I get angry at those things, sinfully angry, I'll clarify. I'm sinfully angry. What am I saying about, well, let me back up one more second. So we know all things work together for good and that all those all things, what are they doing in us? They are conforming us to the image of Christ. It's what those things are designed and hand-chosen by God to do in your life and in mine. So the all things God has a purpose for, and is a good purpose, is to, they're designed to conform us, to shape us, to make us like Jesus. If I'm getting mad at those things, what am I revealing about my Trust in God, relationship to God. Be a captive of my own soul. Yeah. I have a different purpose for my life. You may be revealing that it really <coughs> you don't really want to be like Jesus. That that's worst case, right? You could be revealing that I'm not really wanting to be like Jesus. I want to be captain of my fate, my ship, however that poem goes. I don't remember. So I want to be that guy. I want to be in control. It also could indicate that maybe I, I don't really trust that God can, he knows what he's doing. I mean, honestly, I would be godlier if this person wasn't here. I could be godlier if I had a better job with more money. I mean, really, I could be more like Jesus if this person would just get off my back, stop messing around. If I lived in Hawaii, if I, if I, name the circumstance that you want to change, the person you want out, we are saying that oh, I, I could do this better than God. I'm wiser than him. So to be angry at these things, we are, we are at best showing a lack of faith in God and his goodness and his wisdom. Ouch. Well, I think it really points out who's the Lord in my life. Or my life. Mm-hmm. We love him as Savior, but we embrace him in our Lord. 
Yeah, it's interesting. When I'm angry, sinfully, who is Lord? I am. I think I am. When I am humble and I can submit to that, I am acknowledging the Lordship of Christ. Thanks, John. James 1, 19 and 20. And know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. How can we produce the righteousness of God? Is he saying that first part of that verse? 19. peaceful, seek peace, pursue peace, facilitate that in your relationships. Yeah. And here, be quick to hear. I don't need to be the first one to speak. I don't need to have a quick answer to everything that's brought to me. Slow to speak and slow to anger. If we don't uproot our sinful anger, what effect will it have on our lives? Righteousness everywhere, right? No. When we think that our, our anger is working for us, it's getting what I want done, people are afraid to cross me, so that's great. At work, they do what I say, or I'll yell at them, or I'll do whatever it's going to And it seems to work for a while. That is a very short-sighted view. It's only a matter of time before that will come undone. Our, my anger does not produce the righteousness of God. Colossians 3, 5 through 8. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil, desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. What is God's response to sin? Including anger, wrath, and malice. Verse 6. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. James 4, 11 and 12. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge. He who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? What are we saying about God as judge when we are sinfully angry? Do your job better, God. Also, I think non Christians like to throw around the do not judge your neighbor verse a lot. I also think it's a little interesting that they tend to make more the context for this, mm -hmm. specifically within 
between brothers, do not judge one another. Yeah, and if you look at verse 11, do not, when they're, in their judgment, what are they doing? They're speaking evil against one another. So that's, that's a little bit different than me coming alongside a brother who is in sin and trying to help him walk with him through that, right? So there's, there's not, I'm not being the judge and condemning, saying how terrible you are and how you, you, know, you should just go work on yourself and come back when you're a little bit cleaner. No, I'm alongside him in love and gentleness and humility and helping him. But there, in this context, in that church that James was writing to, there's, there's factions, there's division, there's a lot of bad-mouthing one another. So yeah, we're saying that I could do a better job of judging than, than God can. So in summary, the greatest motivation for Christians to uproot anger, and all sin really, is out of love for God and a desire to please Him through our obedience. So we search and destroy sinful anger when we see it in our hearts. We also come alongside brothers and sisters in Christ to, to gently and humbly uproot anger in their hearts. Help them to do that. We remember that we can please Christ with our spirit-empowered fight against sinful anger, and that's a wonderful motivation for growth. Secondly, we uproot anger to be a blessing to those in our church, in our households, and in public. Promoting peace and unity by eliminating anger is a blessing to those around us. And finally, we saw that righteous living gives a clear conscience, gives us a clear conscience before God, allowing us to experience close communion with our Savior as we walk humbly with our God. So that will conclude our study of uprooting anger. Next week, um, again, the challenge is find the connection between mercy and righteous anger. So that's what I'll leave you with. Next week we'll be doing a, just a quick short study, a couple of weeks probably of good and angry, a couple of chapters in that. But what do we, how do we do anger righteously? What does that look like? Thank you, everybody.